Once David is apprised of the rebellion by his own son, Absalom, he flees the city, and for the second time, he is on the run, as he was in the days of Saul. This is the 33rd sermon in the series Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading this morning comes from 2 Samuel chapter 15, the first 30 verses, the first 30 stanzas, 1 through 30, chapter 15, 2 Samuel, beloved of the Lord, as we read of Absalom's revolt, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, and it came to pass after this, that Absalom prepared him chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate, and it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, then Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is of one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man deputy of the king to hear thee. Absalom said, Moreover, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man which hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. And it was so that when any man came nigh to him to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And it came to pass after, as we have already determined, after Four years, not forty. And it came to pass after four years that Absalom said unto the king, I pray thee, let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed unto the Lord in Hebron. For thy servant vowed a vow while I abode at Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord shall bring me again indeed to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said unto him, Go in peace. So he arose and went unto Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as ye hear the sound of the trumpet, then ye shall say, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. And with Absalom went two hundred men out of Jerusalem that were called, and they went in their simplicity, and they knew not anything. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, even from Gilho, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong. For the people increased continually with Absalom. And there came a messenger to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. And David said unto his servants that were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee. For we shall not else escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring evil upon us and smite the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said unto the king, Behold, thy servants are ready to do whatsoever my lord the king shall appoint. And the king went forth and all his household after him. And the king left ten women, which were concubines, to keep the house. And the king went forth and all the people after him and tarried in a place that was far off. And all his servants passed on beside him. And all the Chirithites and all the Pelethites and all the Gittites, six hundred men which came after him from Gath, passed on before the king. Then said the king to Ittai, the Gittite, Wherefore goest thou also with us? Return to thy place and abide with the king, for thou art a stranger and also an exile. Whereas thou camest but yesterday, should I this day make thee go up and down with us? 
Seeing I go, whither I may, return thou and take back thy brethren. Mercy and truth be with thee. And Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord liveth, and as my lord the king liveth, surely in what place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also will thy servant be. And David said unto Hittai, Go and pass over. And Ittai the Gittite passed over, and all his men, and all the little ones that were with him. And all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people passed over. The king also himself passed over the book Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. And lo, Zadok also, and all the Levites were with him, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God, and Abathar went up until all the people had done passing out of the city. And the king said unto Zadok, Carry back the ark of God into the city. If I shall find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he thus say, I have no delight in thee, behold, here am I. Let him do to me as seemeth good unto him. The king said also unto Zadok the priest, Art not thou a seer? Return into the city in peace. And your two sons with you, Amahaz thy son, and Jonathan, the son of Abathar, see, I will tarry in the plain of the wilderness until there come word from you to certify me. Zadok therefore and Abathar carried the ark of God again to Jerusalem, and they tarried there. And David went up by the ascent of Mount Olive, and went as he went up, and had his head covered, and he went barefoot. And all the people that was with him covered every man his head and they went up weeping as they went up Paul laying down a very fundamental principle in Galatians in chapter 6 beginning in verse 7 and verse 8 by the same spirit Paul says this to the church at Galatia and to the churches of Jesus Christ today be not deceived God is not mocked for whatsoever a man soweth that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. As far as the reading of God's one holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but God's word stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day with all of its warnings and all of its lessons. Now sadly... Nathan's prophecy is finally coming home to David in the most miserable and bitter fashion. As a result of David's sin, God brings down upon him the wages of his transgression. And once again, we are reminded of the principle that the Apostle Paul teaches. God will not be mocked. To the wicked, this is a reminder that while they may for a season only for a season escape God's wrath, while for a season escape God's wrath, God ultimately executes his vengeance upon them. God will not be mocked. To the just, however, this fearful principle, it is for us as well, it is a warning for us to stay on the straight and narrow path of righteousness, mortifying sin and any kind of lust that could come up against us 
lest we too find ourselves in the eye of God's frowning providence as David did. But there is another reason why this principle is given especially to the believer as it was to the church of Galatia. Well, it is a reminder to remain circumspect to the law of God. It is also given as an encouragement, not only a warning, but this is an encouragement that no wicked man, no wicked woman, boy, girl, institution, or government will be able to mock God and then escape the wrath of God, especially when they violate God's glorious law word. So this is a great encouragement for us. They might mock They might stand in the public and mock. They might decry us. They may speak to us vanity and villainy. But they will not mock God and get away with it. So there's a great encouragement to each and every one of us. There will come a day, maybe even sooner than later, but there will come a day when the fire and brimstone of God's wrath will swallow them up, those who are of the rebellious race of Adam. And so after much contemplation, planning and conspiring and mocking God and mocking Jerusalem, mocking the king, mocking the covenant, mocking the oath, mocking the priests. Absalom is now ready to fulfill his rebellious intentions by executing his kingdom takeover from his father, his king and lord David. Now by this time, Absalom, as you know, had won the hearts of the people as well as the loyalty of his army. And as a result, he amassed unto himself 200 men along with the intelligence gatherers, those spies, so that he might have an advantage over the king when the time was right to take the kingdom for himself. Yet his support did not end there. As his fame and popularity grew more and more, more people began following him, even to the extent that the entire nation of Israel, the ten tribes of Israel, had now followed Absalom. Moreover, in Absalom's cunning, he engaged David's priestly counselor, Ahithophel, as his own counselor, in order to show that even David's counselors were on his side. And so once everything was, was organized, and once the conspiracy was ready to be, to be launched, Absalom launches the coup by stating that he now reigns in Hebron, the very place where, where David, his own father, was ordained to be king by the prophet. And it is only then, after the point of no return, that David is apprised of the situation. In verse 13 we read, And there came a messenger to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are following Absalom. They are after Absalom. The obvious question that must be initially asked is, why didn't David know about Absalom's plan to use his popularity for a kingdom takeover sooner. Did this just come upon him as a surprise? It seems as if David at this point may even have been completely unaware of what was going on behind his back in the kingdom by his own son. And if he was, that's his fault. That's on him. There was obviously animosity still brewing, because no way do we read that after David kissed Absalom in a, in a vague show of reconciliation, re- really mostly for optics, there was really no communication after that. We don't read of any communication between Absalom and David. So obviously there might have still been, at least in Absalom's mind, there might have still been some tremendous animosity underlying. But that was on David. David should have taken the high road. David should have reached out to to Absalom. He was the father. He was the king. 
It was his task to, to mend the breach between he and his son. I believe that he should have taken the high road and brought back his son into the good graces of the king, his family and his kingdom and discussed some of the issues that were still between them. The communication certainly had broken down. And once communication breaks down, no matter between, no matter whoever, difficulty always arises. Certainly things should have been discussed. Even if no resolution came of those discussions, they would have aired their differences. So there was a breach in communication. And I have to ask the question, why? And what of Absalom? At this point, he's not a child. He's not just some teenager wanting the kingdom. He's a grown man. He could have continued to seek an audience with the king beyond simply just gaining access back into the city in order to set up his revolution. The cold hard fact, however, is Absalom didn't really want any reconciliation. He didn't want to get back into the good graces of his father. He wanted to destroy his father for his lack of justice dealing with Amnon. He was still bent on justice for his sister Tamar. And this mindset is the mindset of the Adamic nature. Because all those of rebellious Adam seek to usurp the king, that legitimacy of the king, and take the kingdom for themselves, even though they are illegitimate. In the same way that Absalom used his worldly beauty to win the hearts of the people, remember how popular he was, so too did the reparate of the world use worldly appeal to gain followers. Be careful when a popular man rises up. Be very, very suspicious. The Reverend B.F. McLaren observes, he says, For many years, the Romans would not permit the Greeks to teach their children because many of them were homosexuals. Lacking God's spirit, however, because the Romans lacked God's spirit, the Romans' resolve to persist in resisting the seductions of Greek culture failed. Seduction lulled Rome to sleep and she drowned in a sea of sensuality, lacking the spirit of God. Their resolve could not be tested, and it could not stand the test of faith. Now that the situation here between Absalom and David is a critical mass, a messenger comes to warn David of the impending danger. In verse 13, the hearts of the men of Israel, David, they are after Absalom. Note here that the hearts, the scripture is very clear, the hearts the hearts of the men of Israel. Note here, the hearts of these men were loyal to Absalom to the point where they followed him. Now, whether they knew exactly what was happening or not, they were obviously committed and absolutely committed to the king's son, Absalom, without question and without doubt that he was doing the right thing. Maybe even he was commissioned by the king to start taking over the kingdom because David at this point is older now. And this is a very telling statement. These people were sold out for Absalom. Absalom had, in whatever way he connived himself into this situation, he had gotten to the core of these men's being. The heart always symbolizes the root and fabric of the human soul. And this tells us something about Absalom's charisma, which also provides for us that warning that men of great charisma, even those who seem to be charismatic for Christ, may not be sincere. Charisma does not make a man Christian, even though he might speak great and swelling words, even though he might have a form of godliness, he might not have the power therein. 
Absalom used his cunning, his charisma. He used definitely used his good looks. Remember, he was beautiful. And his position as the king's son was used as well. He used all of these things to launch a violent takeover of the kingdom which had been legitimately given to David. It was never legitimately given to Absalom. In fact, it was promised to Solomon. Could it be even that Absalom knew that and wanted to take it for himself before Solomon had a chance? Now, even if Absalom was to inherit the throne, even if it wasn't that Solomon would get it, it still was not the time. The king had not died. Certainly this was not the way. But one of the reasons for Absalom's haste in trying to wrench the throne from David is because he knew that Solomon's waiting in the wings. Solomon was Absalom's fear. Absalom feared his brother, fearing that after David's death, Solomon, not Absalom, would inherit the throne, especially, especially since Absalom's treachery against his own brother was a real issue. Could a premeditated, vigilante murderer rightly inherit the throne of God's kingdom? Now, of course, Immediately we say, well, no, that's a horrible thing. Of course, the statement is even in itself ironic. Since David was guilty of staging a premeditated murder upon Uriah the Hittite in order to cover his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, and yet he inherits the kingdom. In reality, however, David was not only an adulterer, but, but worse than that, he sought to be a deceiving adulterer and a deceptive murderer, which led to the murder of an innocent man. And yet he was given the kingdom. Why not Absalom? Why David? Why would Absalom? Why was Absalom not given the kingdom legitimately? And yet David was, and they both were killers. Well, the difference was God. Because if you think about this, we are all deceptive, adultering murderers with hatred in our heart for our fellow man. What's the difference between us and them? God. God's intervention. God has called us to be his sons. That's the difference. And because of that difference, we inherit the throne of his glory. So now David is facing more hardship with this betrayal by his own son. You have to, you have to pity David. It would be one thing to have some wicked man out there try to take the kingdom. But my own son, David's saying, my own son. And once again, like Adam in the garden, conspiring against and betraying King Jesus, Absalom is conspiring against and betraying King David. In the same way as Adam, after the fall, gathers the human race to conspire against the Lord and against his Messiah, so too does Absalom conspire with the people of Israel to betray David and seek to take the kingdom for themselves. And so it is not only Absalom that is conspiring, but a significant portion of the nation of Israel. And Absalom's character flaw, however, is pride. He's all about himself. Much like Adam. Adam desired to be the king of creation. He wanted to be the kingdom's king. Absalom, too, desired to be the king of Israel, the kingdom of God. Now, perhaps reflecting upon his half-brother's pride, Solomon writes this in verse 18 of Proverbs 16, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. 
Solomon, however, knew something else about pride and the true character of those that have a prideful heart. He associates pride with contention. And that's what Absalom was. He was a prideful man, and because of his pride, he was contentious against his father, David the king. So Solomon associates pride with contention, which is exactly what Absalom was all about. Absalom, like all the rebels, all the wicked, who are rebellious to the crown rights of King Jesus, are contentious. And that's what Solomon says in Proverbs 13.10. Only by pride cometh contention. So whenever the wicked contend with you against the Christ of God, it's because of their pride. According to Solomon, only those who fear the Lord will hate evil. Notice, only those who fear God hate what's going on which leads us to believe that prideful Absalom was actually an evil man and hated God. Notice what Proverbs 8.13 says. The fear of Yahweh is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth, I do hate. So we don't have to be rocket scientists or the most brilliant person on the face of the earth to recognize hateful, prideful men who hate God by their actions. Finally, Solomon warns the prideful that there is an end to their wickedness. There's an end of their pride. In addition to destruction, their end is also great shame. Now, while they are now shameless, there will be a day when they are totally humiliated. Proverbs 11.2 When pride cometh, then cometh shame, but with the lowly, with the humble, is wisdom. There's another parallel between Adam and Absalom, which we should explore. Like Adam before him, Absalom's beauty and his position as the son of the king snared him into believing that he could be the king. Furthermore, in the same way, and you think about Adam... Adam, when he was created, was beautiful. Created in the image of God, without any flaws. Could you even imagine that? We can't even imagine that. But in the same way as Adam waged war against God, because of his beauty, because of his pride, as a result of that prideful heart, desiring to be his God, so too does Absalom wage war against King David, who is a representation of the Lord Jesus Christ, desiring to be king. The war that Absalom waged was initially a war of philosophies, ideologies, and theologies. Absalom's ideas, because as a man thinks, so is he, his ideas about how to rule the kingdom were very different from David's. But in order to advance his ideas without restraint, Absalom had to force David into exile. That's what they're trying to do to the church today. That is what's happening today. The Adamic reprobates of the wicked world that we live in are trying to force Christ into the wilderness. They are trying to force Christ and his witness into the wilderness, into exile. Silence the truth and you can have free range over the world. Cause the righteous to be fearful and you can take dominion. Cause the churches to remain compliant and complacent and you can rule the world. Cause the Christians to be pietistic and you can take over the government. Cause Christian parents to place their children in pagan schools and you control the future. And that's what's happening today. Dare we speak out against any wickedness and, oh, you're a bad person, we're going we're gonna to censure you. 
We're going to make you afraid of losing your job, losing your commission. But in order to advance their ideas of evil, the reprobates seek to create chaos through conspiracy in order to silence the church. If they can silence the church, they have free reign. If you remain fearful to speak out against this thing or that thing or the other thing, then they win. What Absalom initially did was ignore the king and his counsel by replacing the king's counsel with his own. Absalom sought to create his own reality. That is what is happening today. He made the people believe that the counsel of the king can be safely ignored in the same way that the reprobate of the world try to convince people that the counsel of Christ can safely be ignored and the witness of the church is no longer valid. Absalom stood between the people and the king in order to circumvent the king's counsel. And that's what's happening today in spades. The wicked are standing in the way of Christ's truth by offering their own version, usually through the government schools, but even through the churches today, they're offering their own version of truth, which ultimately results in the church's exile. In other words, Jesus is coming soon. Don't worry, he's coming soon. Don't say anything. It's got to be this way. Don't, don't say a word. Just hide out and don't worry. Be happy. Consider Absalom's strategy. It was so simple. It was so painfully simple. All he did was place himself in a conspicuous position among the people. He wanted to be seen. Where are the Christians? Hiding out? They got church on Sunday, if they show up. They got church on Tuesday. They have Wednesday night. They have Bible study. They have this thing. When are they ever in the community? They're hiding out in the four walls of the ghetto church. All he did was become conspicuous. He was able to do this because the king had not placed himself in a conspicuous position among the people. David was disengaged within his own kingdom. Think about the lesson there. Whenever the witness of the truth is taken from the people, whenever the church is disengaged in the community, the kingdom of God is hijacked. We are being hijacked. If the church fails to address the pressing matters of the culture, she will become irrelevant, is what she's basically become, in the same way that David became irrelevant as a result of Absalom's takeover. What must also be pointed out is that Absalom was not counseling the people on purely theological or ceremonial matters. He was counseling them on real life issues. He was, he was making sense. When you go to church today, what, what do you hear? Mostly, mostly doctrine of justification, which is valid to your own life. But what about the culture? Are we not commissioned to go into the world to preach the gospel? And what is the gospel but the sovereignty of Christ and the taking of the kingdom for the glory of God? David became irrelevant because Absalom was ready to deal with real issues of life and death, family matters, things that were happening in in the kingdom. He was counseling them about real life issues, matters of law, ethics, money, government, the military, marital issues, property squabbles, and a host of other real life concerns. While David was sitting at home on his throne, Absalom was dealing with the issues of life, the issues that really mattered to the people in their daily lives. In other words, let me put it this way, Absalom was an activist. 
In other words, he was active. He wasn't asleep. You know, sometimes we, we call the Presbyterians the frozen chosen. The frozen elect. But he was an activist. And this is what the church should be doing. The church needs to be out and about in the marketplace, as Absalom was, in order to counsel the people against the counsel of the reprobate on real matters that the people had to deal with every day. In their everyday lives, these people were dealing with issues they needed someone to talk to. The other day, I came out of the post office, and there was a man in a big truck, who I know, who I talk to often. He beeped his horn at me. He said, get in the truck. I got in the truck. And he needed counseling. He wanted to talk about some issue in his life. And I only know the man from seeing him on the street. Become conspicuous. Make your life conspicuous in the marketplace so that people come to you. Not Absalom, but to you. The problem with the modern church finds itself in three very difficult positions. First, Whenever the church hides within its sanctuary without injecting themselves into the marketplace to discuss real issues, she becomes culturally irrelevant. And once that happens, a vacuum is created and another entity steps in to fill that void. Secondly, some churches believe that their interaction in the culture simply means preaching the salvation message of the gospel. While this is certainly part of the gospel mission. It is not the only duty. We're not only preaching to save people from their sins and from the wrath of God. To only be concerned with the salvation of man's souls is not the entire created order of the gospel claim. Because the gospel claim is to take dominion over everything. To preach only individual salvation is to truncate the gospel. Because then it's a gospel of you. Or you, or you, or you. But not a gospel of the kingdom. Absalom knew what the church needs to know today is that his counsel had to relate to every aspect of Israel's life. And that is what made him so successful. The next time you walk into a public place where you've been going to, a a local delicatessen, a local coffee shop, a local feed store... Engage so that one day they will engage and ask, what do you think about this? What does the Bible say about that? That is power. That is gospel influence. That is power. The third point. Finally, even if the church believed that it needed to apply the scriptures to every aspect of life, it is woefully ill-prepared to solve many of the problems of our time. When's the last time you talk to someone other than within our church here about the solution for the aliens coming in from Mexico. When's the last time you spoke to someone about solving the fentanyl problem, solving economic problems, solving the banking issue, solving the debt issue, solving the crisis we have internationally? When's the last time the church was ever able to discuss those things intellectually, intelligently, biblically with real solutions? We need to be solution oriented. We cannot just curse the darkness. We need to know how to fix the problem. And we are woefully unable to do such a thing. And that is the problem. Solving the problems of the culture biblically 
not only takes careful study, but it's not an easy task. And while it's easy to rebuke the evil, it is quite another to build biblical solutions which will secure good in the culture. But that's what we need to start doing. And if we don't, and if we don't do that, don't bother coming back Sunday morning. Because all we're doing is playing church. All we're doing is playing ceremonies. If we're not ready to engage the world. The complexity of our modern culture and the institutions that we have created have created significant challenges. And so it is much easier to dismiss the call to fix the world than it is to hide out from the world or pontificate against those things that are wrong with the world. Sadly, I believe David was sequestered in his house while Absalom took control. And the result was David's exile. I believe that today the church is in exile. Consider David's response to the news that a takeover is underway by the king's son. Verse 14. And David said unto his servants that were in with him in Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, for we shall not escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring evil upon us and smite the city with the edge of the sword. Now this is incredible. David is afraid not only for his people, He's afraid for the entire city. Only once before have we seen David so fearful of an enemy, and that's when he fled from Saul. Hearing that it is Absalom that has brought down an insurrection upon the kingdom, particularly upon the king himself, David runs from the battle. Now there's a number of reasons for this, a number of possibilities why this is. Firstly, David may have realized that the final installment of Nathan's prophecy may be coming to pass. Perhaps David might have even thought that the end of God's punishment was to have him assassinated by his own son. I mean, he doesn't know that he's going to take the kingdom again. He doesn't know that Absalom was was going to be killed. In fact, later on, as we'll see, he doesn't want Absalom to be killed. But maybe he's thinking, well, this is it. This is it. This is what God's going to do for me. I I killed someone. Now I'm going to be killed. And so he escapes from the city in order not to be killed. That's just natural. He's trying to see, well, maybe if God really wants me killed, I'll be killed no matter where it is. I just don't want to be killed here in the city because if he takes the city, he might even destroy the city. And so he escapes from the city in order not to be killed. And now I'm sure in the back of his mind, he knew that if God wanted him dead, he'd Kill him anywhere. But just in case God wants him alive, he's going to escape. But David is doing now what he hasn't had to do since the days of Saul. And here the king is on the run. Just think about this for a minute. David is still the legitimate king. He still has God's blessings. I believe, because if you read carefully the scripture, the people were willing to fight. I believe that he could have fought Absalom and won. But I also believe that he lost sight of his calling as king. I believe that he lost the sight of the calling that he had as king and the power of his office. He's still the king. In the same way that the church has lost her calling, the sight of her calling as the army of God and the power that it holds. Brothers and sisters, the church of Jesus Christ, because they have the word of God, has the calling and the power to make changes. All we need to do is fight. Not run, not to go into exile, but to fight, to stand up against the wicked. And right now, right now, all we have to do is fight with words. 
Because if we don't fight with words now, we may have to fight with other things later. So David lost sight of his calling as king and the power of his office. The second possibility is that David does not want to go up against his son. He doesn't want to fight against his son. That's a natural thing. He doesn't want his son to be killed in battle. And this might have been too much for David to take since deep down, David really loved Absalom. He didn't want this to happen. A third possibility is that David knew that the kingdom might ultimately be Absalom's anyway in the future. So why fight against something that may be coming to pass anyway? This is what many in the church believe today. Too many Christians believe that the world will ultimately be the devil's. It will ultimately be Absalom, the rebellious one. It will ultimately be home to the wicked and the humanists. So the church says today, why fight? I'll just go into exile. Let's just run and hide. and Let's just wait for Jesus. Another possibility is that David is concerned about his city, Jerusalem. And that is a real possibility. David is afraid that if there is an armed resistance against Absalom, Absalom might resort to destroying the entire city by the end of the sword and burning it down to the ground. And we see two things at work here. First, David is willing to abdicate the throne in order to save the city of Jerusalem in the same way, get this, in the same way that Christ willingly abdicated his throne to become man, going into exile because of the rebellion of Adam so that the people of God would not be destroyed by the sharp two-edged sword of God's wrath because of Adam's sin. See, it all comes together. Secondly, David knows that Absalom is willing to do whatever it takes to rule over the kingdom, even if it means destroying the city of God. And we need to understand that. The wicked will do whatever it takes even if it means destroying the church. And they've tried and tried and tried. They tried by bringing in false doctrines and they will try by silencing the church in any way they can. In fact, it seems as if David believes Absalom is actually planning to do this very thing in a final move to disgrace David. So knowing the extent of Absalom's pride, David may have believed that Absalom may want to remake the city in his own image and and name it after himself in the same way and you think about this in the same way that unregenerate Adamic race the unregenerate Adamic race seeks to destroy the city of God the church in order to make a humanistic name for themselves like in the days of the Tower of Babel and that's what they're doing they're saying let's go into the church let's defile it and make it humanistic inviting every wickedness into the church and calling it a name that we will choose for ourselves. The parallels are just astonishing. So whatever the case, David flees from the city with his trusted followers. And so the shepherd king is about now to be smitten, and the sheep will be scattered. Now once this decision is made to flee, we read this in verse 15 and following, And the king's servant said unto the king, Behold, thy servants are ready to do whatsoever my lord the king shall appoint. Now at that point, if David said, we're going to fight, they were ready. They were ready. Notice what power the leader had. All he had to do as a leader was say, we're going to protect Jerusalem. He's illegitimate. Yes, he's my son. I'm going to do what's right. We're going to fight. David, as the tip of the spear, could have had those people fight. 
The ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ are the tip of the spear, and if they do not fight, the congregation will not fight. So the king goes forth and all his household after him. And the king left ten women, which were concubines, to keep the house. The king went forth and all the people after him and tarried in a place that was far off. So here we see that those that were still loyal to David and the decision to leave some of them behind, these concubines over the house, this is what David wanted to do. He wanted to leave some behind. Now it is assumed that David took his wives and any other children that he had with him But thinking that Absalom wouldn't hurt the household concubines, he decides to leave them in care of the house. God then records who were in the exiled company. So he takes a group of people with him, and then he records in verse 18 who they were. And all his servants passed on beside him, and all the Cherethites, and all the Pelethites, and all the Gittites, 600 men which came after him from Gath. Notice, not only from Judah, not only from the people of God, but those converts from Gath. They went on and passed on before the king. Now these, a lot of these people were were non-Hebrews. They had converted. And they now were faithful servants to David. In fact, some of these people, 600 of them to be exact, were originally from the nation of the Philistines. The Reverend Scott comments, he says, the 600 Gittites seem to have been a distinct body from the Chittites and the Pelethites. They had accompanied or followed David from Gath and probably were proselytes from the Philistines. The Chittites and the Pelethites seemed likewise to have been collected from among the several districts of the Philistines or adjacent and allied tribes. They were, however, numbered among David's most faithful attendants being attached to him by esteem for his character and love to his religion. They were true converts. And they would have done anything for the king. I would ask the churches of Jesus Christ, the elect of God today, you and me, and all those who say that they're Christians, will you do anything for the king? Will you fight for the king? Will you be conspicuous in the culture for the king? Will you stand up for the king? Now one of the individuals that was fleeing with David was Ittai the Gittite. He was the son, if you remember, he was the son of Achash, the king of Gath, who obviously loved David. He revered David. David revered him as well. And seeing that he was among the company, David bids him to return since he only had come to Jerusalem recently and was no longer in danger from Absalom. Absalom wasn't going to go after him. He could have left and just been done with it. And so he says to the king's son, Wherefore goest thou also with us? Why are you coming with us? Go to your place, abide with the king, but thou art the stranger and also in exile. Whereas thou camest but yesterday, you came just recently, should I this day make thee go up and down with us? Are you going to be in exile with us? You just came here. You don't have any part in this argument. Seeing I go whither I may, return thou and take back thy brethren. Go with your brothers and sisters. You don't have a part here. Mercy and truth be with you. I love you. Go. This concern for these people shows something else about David's kindness. He understood what was going on. He knew what was going to befall the city and all those that had confederated with him by the evil Absalom. Now knowing this, he tells Ittai, 
to return to the city before he too becomes a target of Absalom's vengeance. But notice what the man says. He refuses, but notice how he refuses. And Ittai answered the king and said, As Yahweh liveth, and as my lord the king liveth, surely in what place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or in life, even there also will thy servant be. Wow. Even if I die, I'm going to stand with you. Even if I go to prison, even if I die, even if I live, even if I'm slandered, I will go with you. Now this is so reminiscent of Ruth's answer to Naomi when she was told to go back to her people. After Naomi bids Ruth to go back to her people, Ruth tells her this. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people and thy God my God. Where thou diest, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. What loyalty! Not so much has been found in the churches of Jesus Christ in the modern day. It's his answer shows more than simply confederating with David on a political basis but on a theological basis as well. And like Ruth, he is ready to follow David, even if it means death, even if it means that he would die. Note how he addresses David, my Lord, the King. Now, why would he say that? Because he understands this is an indication that he knows who the legitimate king really is. He knew Absalom was illegitimate. He knew the reprobates are illegitimate. My Lord, the King. Now realizing his position and his passion for the honor of the King, David then relents and tells him to go on ahead before him to safety with his entire family. We see this in verse 22. So by telling the people to go on before David shows once again that David's love for his people. He wants everyone to go over safely first. Only then will he follow, but not before everyone else is securely situated over the river. Now you have to put yourself in this position here. Very emotional. And all of the country wept with a loud voice. And all the people passed over. The king also himself passed over the book Kidron. And all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. Very emotional. Everything they knew, everything they knew. It was like us having to flee to Canada or to Mexico because America is in a blaze. Very emotional. Here you have patriots of the kingdom of God, patriots of Jerusalem, not wanting to leave this city, and now weeping because of an insurrection by a wicked reprobate, Adamic man, even the king's son. Now, Kidron is the very same brook where Jesus had to cross in order to enter into the Garden of Gethsemane with his faithful disciples. So here David is going over this historic river, the Brook Kidron, the very same place where Jesus later on in John 18 has to cross. We read this in 18.1 of John. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the Brook Kidron, where there was a garden into which he entered and his disciples. So like David, 
Jesus was about to be exiled with his faithful followers as a result of the wrath and betrayal of Adam and his reprobate emissaries. The connections once again. We learn in verse 24 that David's exile included the priest of God, Zadok, and the Levites. Now this is telling. For if the priests failed to support David, then all really would be lost. David would not have been able to cope knowing that God had taken his priesthood from him because that was his validity. But the priests wanting to go with David, David wants them to remain with the house of David. They were to be minding the Ark of the Covenant. And of course, initially, they immediately took the Ark of God to go into exile. But David didn't want that. It seems that they were so concerned that Absalom would destroy even the Ark of the Covenant to molest it in some way when he took over the city. They understood what that man was all about. So they're trying to save the Ark and go with David, but David refuses. He wants to send them back to the city where it belongs with the priest and his two sons. And we see this in verses 25 and 26. This was David's way of knowing what the will of God was in this situation. And here we see David's faith, trusting in whatever the will of God would be. If Absalom would destroy the city and the Ark of the Covenant, that was God's decision. But being confident that Zadok would not be harmed by Absalom since he was a prophet and a priest of God, David sends him back to Jerusalem. We read this in verses 27 and 28. The king said also unto Zadok the priest, Art not thou a seer? Return into the city in peace, and your two sons with you. Amahaz thy son, Jonathan the son of Abathah. See, I will tarry in the plain of the wilderness until there come word from you to certify me. In other words, he's using them as spies. You certify me when it's safe to come back. So Zadok therefore took Abathar, they carried the ark of God again to Jerusalem, and they tarried there. David is now officially in exile. Separated from his city, separated from his people, and believing that he is separated from God. Coming to terms with this unfortunate chastisement, David weeps. What more could he do? Here's a man that is moved. David went up by the ascent of Mount Olives, the Mount Olivet, and wept as he went, and had his head covered as he went barefoot. And all the people that were with him covered every man his head, and they went up, weeping as they went. Everybody was totally distraught. In the same way as Christ wept over the rebellious Adamic Israelites, so too does David weep over his rebellious son Absalom. We will continue following David in his exile when we return to our series. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.